You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Indonesia says it's got voting security under control, and a lot of the problems sound like good old familiar fraud and dirty campaigning. Trustwave warns of a watering hole on a Pakistani government site. Recorded future goes rat hunting. Proofpoint offers a look at intelligent brute forcing. Kaspersky reports on two espionage APTs exploiting a just-patched Microsoft Zero Day. Flashpoint describes an unusual point-of-sale attack, and Checkpoint find trojanized Android apps. And Germany's BND warns against Huawei. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, March 14, 2019. Indonesian authorities have said, after complaining of Russian and Chinese attempts to meddle with that country's voting, that elections will go on as planned and that they expect the vote to be credible and fair. It's no longer singling out Russia and China. There have been, authorities tell Reuters and others, what they characterize as probes from a range of foreign IP addresses, including Russia and China, but not limited to those two. In any case, the government says it's confident of its ability to handle any disruptions. The opinion in Jakarta is generally that domestic finagling is probably more prevalent than any foreign influence attempts. So the threats are more the commonplace ones, rumor-mongering, campaign lies, and the sort of vote-buying any old-time Chicago ward healer would recognize, like giving someone a turkey and a ride to the polling place if they and their deceased relatives could commit to voting for the machine candidate. They may make a lot of beanbags in Indonesia, but politics ain't beanbag there either. A number of security firms reported threat research results yesterday and today. We'll run through some of them. Trustwave's Spider Lab is warning of compromised Pakistani government sites serving keyloggers. The compromised sites belong to a subdomain of Pakistan's Directorate General of Immigration and Passport that enables people to track their applications through the system. It's effectively a watering hole attack that serves visitors' scan box malware. Scanbox normally appears in the reconnaissance phase of an attack, where it's used to gather the sort of information that will prove useful in subsequent targeted attacks. SpiderLab doesn't offer any attribution for the Pakistani infestation, but they do note that Scanbox has been used in the past by Chinese APTs, Stone Panda, and Lucky Mouse. Whoever's behind it, they may have noticed that Trustwave is on to them, since they appear to have gone quiet. A significant number of attacks against corporate data are traceable to remote-access Trojans, or RATs, many of which represent commodity malware traded in the criminal underground. Recorded Future this morning published an overview of RAT activity. They paid particular attention to Emotet, Extreme RAT, and Zero Access. The researchers were interested in tracing the RAT's command and control channels. 
Most Emotet controllers resolved to Latin America, as did a significant proportion of infected Emotet hosts in the automotive, retail, finance, energy, entertainment, logistics, construction, and technology sectors. Extreme rat infections showed some geographical diversity, turning up in European utilities and video game outfits, telecoms in the Middle East, South Asia, and East Asia, and at least one industrial conglomerate and an IT company, also in East Asia. The attacker's motives are an interesting mix of financial gain, that is, straightforward theft, and street cred, that is, showing off their skills in front of the knucklehead hacker community. In the U.S., as citizens grow increasingly frustrated with what many consider unreasonable encroachments on their privacy, California is leading the way when it comes to consumer privacy legislation. Jeremy Tillman is from Ghostery, makers of the popular privacy-focused web browser plugin, and he offers this perspective. We're in an interesting moment in uh, the sort of U.S. legislative ecosystem where both parties are trying to stake out positions on consumer privacy. Over the past couple of years, with the growing scandals with Facebook, with some of these uh, increased scrutiny, even on Google and Apple, I think both sides of the aisle are trying to find a message that appeals to voters. Um, what's interesting, though, is that there's a lot of competing forces that are sort of playing a bit of a tug of war over what these privacy laws might be. And I think it's pretty striking how they are similar to and how they might be different from what GDPR is. So I think the most well-known one is the California Privacy Act, which in many respects is the strongest uh, data protective uh, protection law in the U.S. By and large, it's pretty much head and shoulders above anything else that has been proposed in the U.S. Uh, it is very strongly uh, requiring consumers have a right to know what companies are, are collecting about them and whether their data is being sold. I think compared to the GDPR, where it falls short, really in two ways. The first is that the GDPR has pretty strict requirements around disclosure by companies and uh, the requirement for consumer opt-ins. Second, the GDPR also has really, really stiff penalties. Um, in fact, I think Google recently had a 50 million euro fine, um, and those fines can go up to the billions of dollars. The California Data Protection Act has far fewer teeth when it comes to the fines, and I think that the biggest fine that a company could get for a single violation is, I think, like 7,500 bucks. So if you're Google or Facebook or any of these big companies, it's more of a PR cost if you violate the California Privacy Act, but there's not a lot of uh, financial risk here if you've got very aggressive data collection practices. And what about this notion that uh, this should really be the first step towards some sort of national policy? So in a weird way, the California Protection Act is, at the moment at least, the sort of de facto national policy because there is no stronger law in the U.S. And because most of these tech companies are in California, it effectively is the only game in town. But there's definitely efforts to pass a watered-down version of the Privacy Act that would supersede the California uh, Privacy Protection Law. You can definitely sort of see how this plays out based on where the tech companies themselves are lining up and which things they fight against and which things they support. I think most recently you've had sort of a flurry of different proposals. Uh, there's the recent one from Marco Rubio, um, the America Data Dissemination Act. And it's interesting that that act is very much vaguely worded and doesn't really include a lot of specifics, but what it does include is the fact that this would supersede any state laws. So 
there's definitely an effort on behalf of, I think, uh, tech companies and their lobby to get a watered down version of a privacy act, a, a federal privacy act that rather than conflict with their business models, perhaps entrenches it even further. That's Jeremy Tillman from Ghostery. There are surely many advantages to cloud services, economy, convenience, and indeed security, especially for smaller enterprises. But the cloud isn't, of course, either foolproof or fail-safe. Proofpoint released a study today in which it outlined how threat actors breach cloud accounts. They're seeing a more complex and sophisticated approach to brute forcing, sufficiently sophisticated as to perhaps no longer deserve the name of brute forcing. Proofpoint calls them intelligent brute forcing. Attackers used password spraying and credential stuffing, made easier by access to large credential dumps. These were followed with phishing for credentials that would give further access to corporate accounts. The goal is internal phishing and business email compromise, always more persuasive than attempts that obviously originate outside an enterprise. The end game, of course, is usually theft of either money or data. Kaspersky Lab reports that a zero-day Microsoft patch this week, CVE 2019-0797, is being actively exploited by two espionage APTs, Sandcat and Fruity Armor. Sandcat also uses Chainshot malware and the controversial intercept tools FinFisher and FinSpy. Fruity Armor's been around for a while, and Sandcat is a more recent discovery. Attribution is unclear, but the APTs appear to have a particular interest in Middle Eastern targets. Flashpoint researchers note an unusual point-of-sale campaign that's targeted mainly small and medium-sized businesses. DM Sniff creates command and control domains using a domain generation algorithm. This makes the malware more resistant to domain takedowns by police or tech service providers. Flashpoint says this particular tactic hasn't often been seen in point-of-sale attacks. Researchers at Checkpoint describe Operation Sheep, in which Chinese IT and services firm Wangzhou Shunwang Technology is apparently scraping data, contact lists, geolocation, and QQ Messenger login information from Android phones via some 12 Android apps infected through a data analytics software development kit. The applications are available through third-party stores and seem mostly to affect users in China. Checkpoint thinks the app developers and the stores have been unaware of the data collection campaign. Shun Wang may be doing its collection mostly domestically, but international concern about Chinese presence in infrastructure, especially in 5G buildouts, remains high. Germany is set to auction 5G licenses next week, and that country's intelligence service has added its warning to those offered earlier this week by the European Parliament. The BND says that Huawei in particular is not to be trusted in the infrastructure. The CyberWire was at the Johns Hopkins University yesterday, attending the Cybersecurity Conference for Executives. The conference, organized by the Johns Hopkins Whiting School of Engineering and Encura, concentrated on regulatory frameworks and trends and the sometimes surprising impact of national, international, and state regulations on businesses of all sizes. You may not think you're interested in GDPR, or for that matter, HIPAA or CCPA, but as several experts explained, they're interested in you. Be brave, but don't hesitate to seek help as these regulatory frameworks continue to evolve.
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Robert M. Lee. He's the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, it's great to have you back. Um, I wanted to touch base with you about the situation that's going on with the electrical grid down in Venezuela. Uh, lots of intrigue there. It's a really sad situation. Obviously, regardless of the cause of the outage, you're talking about massive outages across the country in ways that we already know people have died. And obviously, a lot of folks are in hardship as well as just general fear is turmoil in their country exists and now they have to deal with without the basic utilities of life so it's um it's incredibly heart-wrenching kind of scenario that they're in right now now what do you make of president maduro blaming the u.s for this outage he went so far as to say that the u.s conducted a demonic electromagnetic attack uh, i'm gonna guess that a lot of people aren't taking that seriously no, I, you know, the original discussion was around a cyber attack and the original discussion was at, they kept pointing to and, and discussing a specific dam in their country, uh, how the cyber attack took place at. Um, but then it turns out that they didn't quite know where the outage was coming from, whether it was like a transmission line issue or a generation issue, which wouldn't the dam. And so they came out right out the gate saying, hey, it's a cyber attack. We have evidence and it's the United States. Then they, it turns out not only did they not have evidence, but they didn't even know exactly where the outage was coming from, which definitely calls into question any discussion of attribution or, or belief that it was a cyber attack. And then later on, they were talking about the electromagnetic aspect, which was, if I, if I remember correctly, he was even talking about weird drone-like 
uh, devices that perched on top of the transmission lines and then perform this. I kind of call into, I don't kind of, I, I very overtly call into question their ability to know what a cyber attack or electromagnetic issue would look like. The, what I mean by that is the way that they're describing both the cyber attack and the way that they're both describing electromagnetic um, pulse attack uh, indicates to me that nobody involved in creating that story had familiarity with what a real one would look like. And it's it's obvious in the way they describe it. Um, so I, I not only say that, that it is unlikely to be the case, but they they really do not include the appropriate language to indicate that there's a there there. Hmm. Isn't it interesting though that um, you know cyber attack becomes something that uh, that they can just toss out there as a, a cover to not blame themselves? Yeah, it, it is, and this is this actually kind of harkens back to a couple things that many of us in the community have been warning about. I mean, I've written extensively about before on the need to have evidence presented with attribution. And the, also the the need to understand the implications of targeting infrastructure. So on, on one hand, you know, when the United States comes out and does attribution on different countries, like I think it's it's actually a good tool. I don't I don't really think there's value in private sector companies doing the attribution they do. I've, I've been a critic of that before, but for a government to come out and do so is an incredibly important part of international relations and their ability to dictate policy and action. But Doing attribution without actually providing evidence, which we have done plenty of times before, um, some some of the indictments exact opposite. We do a really good job, but some some of the uh, times that we've done attribution as a country have been completely void of 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 actual evidence, and that sets a precedent where other countries can do the same. Now, I think many countries do take the United States coming out and making claims of attribution much more seriously than Venezuela, but on the international scene, I don't know that we should set that precedent that it is okay to do attribution without evidence. Like if a country is going to come forward, claiming sources and methods and hiding behind classified data is not going to be conducive to ever setting the standard that countries actually have to put up or shut up. Um, and that can become tricky in areas like this. On, on the converse, going back to the cyber attack discussion, you know, there, I don't think this is a cyber attack. There's zero evidence to support it, but, but nobody can rule it out either because obviously we're not on the ground looking at this case. Mm. Um, I don't think it's a high chance, but you know, you 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 can't just equivocally come out and say something is not something. But what I what I will say on this is is it is a good example of what I've kind of petitioned before, which is get out of other people's infrastructure. If if there is no such thing as a good guy or gal in terms of of cyber attackers, so it's 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 the idea that any country could break into any other country's infrastructure, like you're the bad guy. There is no, oh, we're just here for intelligence purposes, or, oh, it's preposition to conflict, or, oh, whatever. It, it, and I think modern countries struggle with this, of the desire to break into infrastructure for military planning and purposes, but not necessarily do anything with it. And the problem is you could accidentally cause an issue. And we've seen that in attacks before. Uh, it was very likely what occurred in the German Steelworks case in 2014. But but this could be, I don't think it is. I don't want to start that rumor. Like, I really don't think this is a cyber attack. But... Mm -hmm. But it's a good example of in aging and poorly maintained infrastructure, if a intelligence agency or military group breaks into an organization and accidentally does something to take down infrastructure, you open up this entire issue of not only political consequence, but potentially cascading issues where they're already poorly maintaining that infrastructure. There's already turmoil in that country. 
you could cause an issue that scales way beyond your control very quickly where we are talking about loss of human life. And and that is just unfortunate. So is this case a cyber attack? I don't think so. There's nothing to support that. And it and with their jumping narrative, it does seem that they're just blaming anything and everything to distract from the actual issue. But it is a good example of the kind of issues that can come up if people are poking around in each other's infrastructure. Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.